0: Hello, this is Jillian Zhang with the Center for Medieval and Renaissance Studies at The Ohio State University. I'm talking today with our guest speaker, Dr. Mark Rankin, who will present a talk later this evening entitled Accuracy and Error in the Production of John Fox and John Day's X and the Monument. Dr. Rankin's talk will be the first lecture in our 2021 to 2022 lecture series, And they also held in honor of Professor John King, who was designated Distinguished University Professor at OSU in 2004. Dr. Ranking was an advisee of Professor King, and they have collaborated on a variety of projects. After completing his PhD at OSU, Dr. Ranking has been teaching at the Department of English, James Madison University, until present. He has also obtained many prestige scholarships from National Endowment for the Humanity, Huntington Library, Falger Shakespeare Library, just to name a few. So today we are going to be talking about Dr. Ranking's research experience in the field of medieval and the Renaissance studies, about some of his memories of OSU, working with Professor King, and about the university's rare book collections. So welcome Dr. Ranking. Welcome back to OSU. It's a pleasure to talk to you today.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Um, So before we delve into more specific questions, can you tell our listeners more about yourself? Um, When did you first become interested in the medieval and Renaissance studies or English literature?
1: Sure. Um, I've always loved reading, and um, the story goes back a long way. Uh, I became interested in Renaissance studies through the Reformation, actually. Mm -hmm. Uh, And in my upbringing um, in the Anglican slash Episcopal world, Mm -hmm. I became interested in the ways in which the Church of England and different versions of Christianity came out of the Reformation. And the story of that attracted me a great deal in terms of the literary side more than the historical side per se because of the creativity involved in representing uh, the events of the Reformation. And so that's why I gravitated to um, to literature. And I decided to specialize in that area when I came here to OSU mm-hmm. after having previously studied novels and some other things. Uh, and so, yeah, that's, um, that's what I would say
0: so you were interested in uh the reformation like back to high school i think so Uh i mean
1: i i took a um like a western civ advanced placement class uh in high school and the teacher had the phd in reformation studies and he inspired me to think about the yeah the complex um the players the actors the events the personalities and uh yeah, the ways that books during the Reformation affected the spread of ideas, uh, the ways that books circulated, the ways that authors attempted to influence people's thinking, mm-hmm. uh, and translations of the English Bible as well.
0: When you enter college, you study English literature.
1: Uh, I started actually far afield in engineering, oh. Oh, wow. and I made the switch to English literature uh, and education. And the teachers that I had at that time. Uh, I spent some time studying 19th century novels, but then uh, made the switch to the Renaissance.
0: Wow. It's like a big decision, right, to like change your major from engineering to English literature. I
1: hated engineering. Oh. Uh, and, and yeah, I just, I just did it and didn't like it. And I came to what I love. And you were asking about how I came to study the Renaissance here at OSU, is that right?
0: Yeah. Uh, What drew you to this uh, specific program?
1: Right. So the story is that I did my MA at Ohio University, about Mm -hmm. 80 miles uh, southeast of here. And I had a professor there who knew about OSU, and he encouraged me to apply when Uh. I was looking at the Ph.D. And so I did. And... I came to OSU and uh, saw it as an ideal opportunity for me to really delve deeper into my interest in Reformation studies. Mm-hmm. And so the Renaissance Early Modern became my natural home. By the same token, Professor King's research was a, a natural draw for me because of um, his pioneering work in that field.
0: I noticed that you and Professor King like co- collaborated on a... A lot of uh, we, we have. Yeah, you're like co writing articles and also co editing a monograph. So, w- what is your first collaboration?
1: Uh, right. They all happen almost the same time. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, when I was finishing up my dissertation, mm-hmm. uh, John invited me to collaborate with him on several projects. Um, we did an article together uh, in the yearbook of. Uh, English Studies on English Mm -hmm. Translations of Continental Reform. And that was a project that uh, I believe John had proposed to a special issue, and he asked me to co-author the piece with him. Mm -hmm. Um, Also, the edited collection, Henry VIII and His Afterlives, Mm -hmm. was published in uh, to time with the 2009 Mm -hmm. 500th anniversary of Uh, King Henry VIII's accession to the throne. And so it seemed uh, a great time to look at how Henry VIII was represented uh, in different kinds of literature and also historical texts. Uh, Uh That was the subject of my dissertation research. Uh And uh, so I don't know who first came up with the idea. (laughs) Uh, So Chris Hiley as well was involved. And the three of us uh, approached Cambridge and uh, we were able to do the collection. Um, so that was another big collaboration. And then I also collaborated with John on five separate National Endowment for the Humanities summer seminars. Oh, wow. Uh, uh-huh. And a sixth uh, will be offered here at OSU in 2022. That's yeah. next year. Next year, next mm-hmm. summer. Yeah.
0: Oh, so there are s- so many collaborations. <laughs>
1: right, and I think that I, I was very fortunate. Um, I-, I understand that not every doctoral student enters into such rich collaboration uh with the right. advisor uh and john invited me to collaborate with him and i have always taken opportunities uh, to collaborate with other scholars if the product is something that i can't produce myself mm-hmm. that, that is if if the end result is better than anything any of us could do individually uh, and so that's been my philosophy Uh, in collaboration and that's that's what guided my work with Professor King
0: yeah I think this is not that common but as you said like teamwork is really important in science field they have a lot of collaboration like teamwork Mm -hmm. but in humanities I think we should have more we should yeah
1: and John also offered me friendship Uh fairly early on and uh I did my due diligence, but there was a time when the relationship became more of a colleague relationship, Mm -hmm. probably soon after I graduated from OSU. And so I really put a lot of the thanks on him because the collaboration wouldn't have happened if it were not for his generosity Uh uh, and his gracious willingness to do it, to provide me with opportunities to advance my career. That's really what it was about.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and I just simply took the opportunities that he offered. Um,
0: because I think both of you work on the same time period or same field, right?
1: That, that, that helped a lot. Yeah, no. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, and I know that uh, as our listeners may also know that uh, the OSU library has a very good collections on rare book and I think Professor John King also helped to make our collections, like uh, the finest John Fox collections, right? And, and also we have the unparalleled collections on books uh, printed by John Day. Is there like one particular book that you think is extremely interesting or remarkable?
1: Can I tell the story of some of those collections being built first? Is yeah, that possible? Yeah, of course. Yeah, so um, Jim Bracken was a librarian here for many years. And he and John collaborated beginning when John arrived at Ohio State in the late 1980s. Uh, and they began to purchase copies of Fox's Acts and Monuments, the mm-hmm. early editions printed by John Day, who was the premier printer of 16th century England and Queen Elizabeth the First Reign, mm-hmm. uh, there was a bookseller in Ireland that uh, OSU sent deaccessioned duplicate copies of ordinary books across the ocean to this Irish bookseller oh. in exchange for copies of Acts and Monuments. Mm-hmm. And this was built up... Uh, over a period of years in the late 1990s uh, and early 2000s, being finished right when I was here from 2001 to 2007. The result of that collaboration has made Ohio State uh, one of the finest John Fox collections in the world. Uh, There are only two or three other institutions in North America whose collections rival Ohio State's. Uh, there was also a, a, very, a very fortuitous arrangement was made between the libraries and the football program. Uh, mm-hmm. In 2002, Ohio State won the national championship in football, and the, uh, the, the money that came to the university was d- divided up in different piles, mm-hmm. and a huge pile of that went to the library. Oh. And when that happened, there was uh, several hundred thousand dollars cash, mm-hmm. and at that same time, the university... Uh, made an offer for something called the James Stevens Cox STC collection. Stevens Cox was a rare book collector and he had a collection of books that are um, so very rare that the standard catalog of rare books, the short title catalog Mm -hmm. or STC, lists him as a named collector. Most of the time, this catalog only lists institutions. But if the book is rare enough... It would list an individual. Well, the estate, when when Stevens Cox passed away, uh, wanted to sell the whole collection to an institutional library in one piece. And so Ohio State had the cash to make (laughs) that purchase. And so this is uh, extraordinary because these Mm -hmm. books survive in only one, two, or three copies uh, anywhere. Uh, The John Day collection, which you mentioned, other books beside the fox, printed by John Day. Uh, so John King and James Bracken, they uh, built up that collection as well, mm-hmm. uh, using various funding uh, and various <laughs> arrangements similar to what I've described. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, it's really made, the, the study of printing of, of the first century or so, 150 years of English printing during the 16th century, has made Ohio State a destination to study those subjects. I think that the Fox collection is my favorite for various reasons, uh, because Fox's Acts and Monuments is such an extraordinary book. Mm -hmm. Um, It's the most complicated book printed in England during this time. And I'll talk more about this tonight. But yeah. for this uh, discussion, I'd like to mention one of the Stevens Cox books, actually, uh, by a, an English preacher called Francis Roos. It's called The Mystical Marriage. Mm-hmm. And in the front on a blank page is instructions that this was a book that was owned in the 17th century by a parish church. And in the uh, front are instructions for the book to be Circulated as an early lending library mm-hmm. to parishioners. And it has three or four names of people who signed out the book and the date, and mm-hmm. then the date it was returned, and then the next uh-huh. borrower. And so this kind of thing is extraordinary. Uh, yeah. uh, and, and these are the kinds of discoveries that can be made by looking at um, collections of this kind. So that's a real gem. Is and that th- yeah. very
0: rare? Like, usually we couldn't see this kind of record, like people. Right, because, mm-hmm.
1: because you know, if there's no written record, mm-hmm. then there's no knowledge that it happened. Right. And so so this book tells us that it was part of this library, mm. and the evidence is in the book. Yeah. And so this is why, for example, the physical book matters for research a great deal, mm-hmm. that online books and and the way that the internet has changed research, all of this is wonderful. But yeah. there, there is knowledge preserved within the copy of the book sitting on your desk that may be in no other copy of that book. Uh, <laughs> plus, the, the Mystical Marriage is from the collection of extremely rare, there may only be one or two copies that survive, uh, or very few in any case.
0: Yeah, that sounds really interesting. Yeah, and I I'm also interested in book history, and I noticed that like recently, book historians not only like pay attention to the content. Of the book, but pay more attention to the materiality of the book, and also the various stages of a work's life, like from author to publisher, to printer and bookseller, and also readers. So, um, so I'm curious, like, what's your uh, methodologies? Right. Yeah.
1: Great question. Um, so, for me, the history of the book is the story of The relationship between Mm -hmm. a book's physical features Mm -hmm. and the contents of the text or texts that it contains the physicality of a book evolves in relationship to the contents in ways that can be described and that actually illuminates the contents in several possible ways for example if a printer designs a book in a certain way, mm-hmm. that could tell us something about how that work was intended to be received, for example. Um, now, you mentioned the, the life cycle of a book. Yeah. Uh, there is a scholar who has developed an idea called the communication circuit, which you might have in mind, where you have authors, printers, distributors, publishers, readers, binders, and, and it's sort of a circuit. That's yeah. been very influential in book mm-hmm. history. For me... My approach is to look at as many copies of a book of any given title as possible to try to find some things out about the book that may be unique in the copies that are in front of me. Uh, So, for example, my talk today is going to be looking at John Day, the printer's approach to correction in Fox's book. And he uses, among other uh, techniques, he glues little pieces of paper with text printed on top of incorrect text (laughs) now he doesn't do this in every copy and so you have to look at as many as possible to see how he approaches the problem of error um and so i'm very entrepreneurial Uh, i think of my work in some ways as the indiana jones of rare book research that is i i go beyond the major archives you know the folger shakespeare library the british library Uh, The Bodleian. I go to those places, but I also try to go off the beaten path because every book tells a story. And in a way, my approach is to follow the story. I think that the best book history goes beyond the nuts and bolts of signature markings and, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, gatherings and collation and sort of that to tell a bigger story Mm
0: -hmm. about
1: ideas yeah. So how does the history of the book tell, uh, allow researchers to explore ideas and the history of thinking? To me, the history of the book is an ideal vehicle for understanding the history of thinking. You know, we can learn about patronage uh, from uh, dedications, but also from the way a book is made. Is it hand colored? Is it bound in a special way, for example? And it goes on and on. And so that's how I would address the problem in the question you asked.
0: Yeah, excellent. Yeah. I think I think that's very interesting that you track the book, like different copies and right. also different versions to see how the the text or contents or change. Right.
1: Yeah. We have to we have to understand that printers in the period that we're talking about, mm-hmm. right, which is the Renaissance period, printers did not leave records, written records of their business operation by and large uh, in England, especially, or if they left them, they've been lost. So there's no diary that tells us that this is John Day's approach to the problem of error. He simply worked on the fly. And so to recover that, you have to look at the artifact and deduce what he's doing from the evidence in front of you. Do we have time for another story?
0: Yes, of course. Right. I wanted, mm-hmm. to, I
1: wanted to just give another example of this. Mm-hmm. Um, some of my work has dealt with uh, a man called Richard Topcliffe. And Topcliffe was a despicable man. He was a torturer. Oh. And yet he was also a reader. And what he did was he worked for Queen Elizabeth's government. He confiscated books from houses of English Catholics. He read them. And he wrote in the margin the ways in which the book in front of him conformed to existing statute law mm-hmm. against things like royal assassination and allegiance to a foreign power because it wasn't illegal to be Catholic, but it was illegal to, to pledge allegiance to a foreign power like the Pope. And so he created evidence that Catholics were seditious, And that they were breaking the law so that the government would have evidence to prosecute to execution. And he did this in the margins of his books. And so this is a great example of how the study of a reader can get into issues concerning police brutality and issues concerning um, how books are controversial. Uh, And what does a a hostile government do Mm -hmm. with the books that it opposes? once those books enter into the government's bureaucratic machine, mm-hmm. uh, that that can actually in some cases be described. And so I always try to, whether it be Fox or, or English Catholic books or other kinds of uh, printed books, I always try to find that story because that's really what legitimizes the history of the book yeah. within the broader humanities.
0: Yeah, that's a very fascinating story. And I noticed that you pay a lot of attention to readers. I know, like, readers are really important, but sometimes it's not easy to find them, right?
1: Right. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It can be very hard.
0: yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Like, usually, how could you, like, find those readers?
1: Right. So, William Sherman has a book called Used Books, Marking Readers in Renaissance England. One of the things he mentions is that the reader reading is... Uh, by definition, impossible to recover, oh. that, that, that reading leaves no, no sign of its having happened. Yeah. And so if a reader has written something down about the reading, then it's writing, not reading. And oh, so immediately yeah. the question of readers uh, really becomes like sand in your fingers falling oh. through. Uh, And so often what readers write down in the margin isn't the kind of thing that we would be interested in seeing. Uh, And so it can be very difficult. One of the things that I do is I look at as many copies of a, a book as possible, as I mentioned, to see what kinds of readers do write things in the margin. Also, the study of the history of reading now is evolving rapidly toward representations of reading and different kinds of reading, reading aloud, for example, and hearing Versus reading, that Um. hearing something read isn't the same phenomenon as reading something aloud. It gets very, very interesting in terms of sort of how you talk about the history of reading. There are visual representations of reading. In, In some ways, it's all of these categories of evidence working together at the same time that helps me tell the story I'm looking for.
0: I see. Yeah, that you need to do a lot of archives. Studies. Very
1: considerable amount of legwork.
0: I'm um, uh, very interesting. Have you uh, worked on a monograph on readers?
1: Right. So great question. In fact, one of the things I'm doing right now with Fox is a census of surviving copies of the first four editions, those that Fox worked on with John Day. And that census has reached 189 copies oh, wow. out of about 250 total. Now, as I approach the 250 mark, my plan is to look at authors who themselves read Fox and to go beyond existing work, mostly by John King, actually, on the history of the reading of Fox, to compare the things that readers are putting in the margin of their copies of Fox with what authors are saying about Fox <laughs> who have read him and are writing about him. In this way, uh, I hope to tell a broader story about precisely how the Book of Martyrs or the Acts and Monuments, this is it's the same book, how is that book actually influential?
0: Mm-hmm. That,
1: that is, we say this is an influential book. Well, for me, again, it's the bigger story. What does that mean? by looking uh, at all of those copies i can add to the conversation uh in ways that would not otherwise be possible so that is a current book project the acts and monuments went into nine editions Mm -hmm. down to 1684 and i'm only looking at the first four those of 1563 1570 1576 1583 those are the four that fox himself edited the four that john day printed with Fox. Uh, I'll leave it to someone else to look at the later editions. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I
0: see. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I also have a questions about the, the term editions. Right. Yeah, yeah, I know like because in Chinese book history, editions, it's a very complicated term. Like most Chinese uh, pre-modern books were publishing block printing technology. So, right. yeah. So although they printed in different time period, if they use the same wood blocks, that means they are the same edition.
1: Right. So in, mm-hmm. early, in early printing, mm-hmm. um, bookmaking is an industrial process. And type is not a verb, it's a noun. Type is something that you hold in your hand. It is a piece of metal that has a letter on the end, and it's made through a casting process. And these individual letters on pieces of type were assembled in order uh, in what's called a form Mm -hmm. on a flat surface and then tightened all together and rolled under the printing press for bookmaking. Now, if a work is so produced and then the type is disassembled and returned to the case and then reassembled, you have a new edition. Oh. So when you assemble type into your printing process uh, and you print your book on a hand-operated press, as long as you keep the type together, <laughs> it's the same edition. Now, it could be, um, you know, uh, very rarely in England were, was type ever held together after a book was made because there was not enough type to go around for a printer. Right. And so I suppose that if, you know, let's say if it was something like the ABCs, something like that. Uh, If it was held together and then printed two years later, that would be a new edition. So if time elapses, but for the most part, it's the idea of assembly and disassembly that marks an edition.
0: I see. Yeah, that makes sense. And so for each editions, the printers will make some change because he or she will notice that there's maybe some mistake and...
1: Uh, possibly. Uh-huh. It, it, it depends, really. Uh, yeah. Fox is a special case because each of the editions that he worked on, especially the, the second one, the, the movement from the second with well, the production of the first edition and then the second, it's expanding. Mm-hmm. So he's bringing stuff into the printing house as it's being printed, which forces John Day to resort to all kinds of creative techniques in order to fit material in. And so authors are usually not so ambitious. They're <laughs> usually not so driven. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes they're not even there. I and see. so in those cases, an edition could be reprinted mm-hmm. from a previous printing uh, with no changes. And in effect, the changes that would result would be errors introduced in the printing process, for example, if, if there was the wrong letter in the wrong place, and the compositor, the printing workman called the compositor who puts the letters together. Mm -hmm. If he grabs the incorrect letter, then you have an error in the resulting text. This happens often in Shakespeare, in the printing of Shakespeare's plays, for example. Mm -hmm. Uh, But in the case of Fox, you have an author who's continuing to compile and continuing to produce during the production process. That's uh, a very uh, unique case, or a rare case, I should say.
0: Yeah, so I think um, on that note, it's a good place for us to end our interview here. Yeah, and thank you, Mark, very much for sharing your research and your experience with us.
1: Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure.
0: Thank you.